Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Emergency Trauma Mamas podcast. Um, let's talk today about head trauma. Since we've covered quite a few um, trauma subjects so far, um, I've actually, actually, before we get started, I just wanted to give a little shout out to some of my listeners. I uh, went to my dashboard um, the other day and I noticed that I had some listeners from all across the world, actually, um, from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, shout out to the UK, uh, Denmark, and Ireland, and um, here in the States, I've got um, about 15% of you are listening from California. So shout out to all of you guys, and thank you for tuning in. So what we're going to talk about today, of course, is head trauma. So um, a lot of you have made a couple comments or what I've been reading at least on my Instagram as well is talking a little bit about the laid sequence intubation and the progression for that versus RSI. So I think we'll talk a little bit about the head trauma case study and then we'll kind of move into the DSI versus the RSI um, when it's appropriate to use it and that type of thing. So the case study that we're going to talk about today is actually in um, your ATLS book. So if you have an ATLS book, um, this is chapter six, um, head trauma, page 148. And again, you know, I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up too about um, the DSI, um, Dr. Scott Weingart, who I'm sure a lot of you have already heard of or heard his podcast or been on his website. He has a website. Um, um, I follow it pretty regularly. It's called MCRIT. And he's got a great page up. Um, He's got a podcast as well, but on DSI. And the DSI page in and of itself has the Annals of Emergency Medicine study that came out in like 2014 um, about DSI and when it's appropriate to use it. It's got um, an algorithm. It's got a link to the podcast. It's episode 137 if you're looking for it including all of the EBP and tables and just tons and tons of data. So if you're um, super curious and you want a couple more resources other than what we're going to kind of chat about in the podcast today, um, feel free to um, jump onto his website because it is really, really informative. Um, Dr. Scott Weingart is awesome anyway. So um, you are going to be receiving a 58-year-old male patient who fell from a second-story roof in a small rural town. He's initially able to say his name, um, has a heart rate of 115, blood pressure of 100 over 60, and O2 sat of 88%. And it doesn't say, I'm guessing you're a mayor. Um, it doesn't say. His initial GCS is 12. Um two hours after transfer to your trauma center because again remember he was in a rural town so probably no level three two or one trauma center close by so they had to stabilize and transfer to you so prior to that it's been about two hours now since the initial injury and think again about mechanism injury is two-story fall from a roof it doesn't say what he fell onto or how he fell or how he landed um so status post fall, um, two stories, two hours after transfer to you, you notice that he has Norris respirators, a heart rate of 120, uh, blood pressure of 100 over 70, and now his GCS is 6. So of course, remember, um, GCS less than 8 intubate. So at this point, he's had a status change. 
So, and it doesn't say initially, okay, you've got the CT, you know that this is what's going on. But think about your head injured patients. And I'm sure those of you who have, you know, either had it in paramedic school or nursing school, you know, you talk a little bit about, and it's covered in the ATLS book as well, the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. So how does the brain compensate or the brain in the cranial vault? You know, there's not a lot of space um, for for edema, for hemorrhage, for any kind of injury or assault to the brain. Normally, of course, within other parts of our body, we get hit and there's area, there's tissue, there's room for your body to even start to have a hematoma. Um, of course, we know that with the skull and the cranial vault being what it is, there's not a lot of room for expansion, right? So you kind of have to go back to your anatomy and physiology and think about, okay, you've got the dura matter, the pia matter, and you've got all of this, um, and then you've got the ventricles, and then you've got the CSF, and there's not a lot of room for shifting, right? Because the skull is very hard, obviously. Um, when you talk about shifting and herniations and those types of things, things happen that way because of the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. So remember that the intracranial contents, they, they remain constant. There's nowhere for things to go. However, if you do have um, an assault, like to that area, so an addition of a mass, so you have a hematoma, for instance, and it's trying to push things around and move things around, you know, your CSF and your venous blood and the ICP is going to attempt to compensate the best that it can by using the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. So what it will, what your brain will do, I mean, it'll try to squeeze out some extra CSF if it can to compensate. You know, the mass is going to keep increasing, so therefore you have a compensatory mechanism, but it's not really able to empty a lot of the venous volume or arterial volume. I mean, venous volume, yeah, sure, just a little bit it can let out. Um, arterial volume, no. Brain, no. Um, the mass is going to keep expanding, and of course your brain tries to let out a little bit of the extra CSF volume if it can. So it's it's that's where we get the CPP from or the cerebral perfusion pressure. So remember your CPP equals the MAP minus the ICP. So a MAP of 50 to 150 millimeters of mercury is auto-regulated. Um, so that's going to help keep your brain auto-regulated. And of course, a severe TBI, um, any kind of injury is going to disrupt the auto-regulation and then the brain can't compensate for the changes in the CPP. And then of course, if the MAP is too low, you've got the ischemia, uh, brain infarction, and we don't want the MAP to be too high, right? Because then you've got the increased brain swelling and the elevated ICP. So if you've got a transection of the brain with a nine millimeter and the ICP is 60, that's also bad, right? Because the cerebral blood um, vessels can only constrict or dilate due to changes in the uh, PaO2 and the PaCO2. So not only do we have the initial injury that you know you might see right away or two hours ago on this patient from the CT, now we've got all the CPP and autoregulation and Monroe-Kelly doctrine. Now we've had time since the initial injury um, to think about all of these secondary injuries that can occur as a result of 
whether the patient was hypotensive. Remember, if they have one episode of hypotension where the map is not where it needs to be, we have seen a lot of studies that show how detrimental that is um, to the brain, to the brain injured patient um, and to the trauma patient in general. But since we're talking trauma, um, particularly hypotension, hypoxia, um, who knows how long he was laying there until 911 was activated. If he was by himself uh, fixing something on the roof and he could have been there for a while, what, you know, what was his blood pressure? Was he breathing normally? Um, so hypotension, hypoxia, hypercapnia, um, or hypocapnia. So we want to enhance the CPP and blood flow um, by reducing the ICP. So we know that. Um, and we want a normal map as much as possible. Um, so we want to maintain that CPP and help to improve um, the cerebral blood flow. And that's the biggest thing. So the next step, of course, for this patient, um, a GCS is less than eight. So we're going to go ahead and intubate. And it looks like he gets a second liter of normal saline. Um, and his heart rate improves to 100 and his O2 set improves to 94%. So now his blood pressure is 100 over 70. So we'll say that for, for whatever reason, your patient um, actually has a slight bump or improvement in their vital signs at this point. And we went, again, we went ahead and got the head CT and the abdominal CT because in the urban area or, you know, the urban emergency department, they just stabilized and transported this guy, which they got him to the trauma center as fast as they could. So they didn't really um, do a lot of diagnostic studies. So now that we have him here in the trauma center, we're going to go ahead and get the CT of the head and CT of the abdomen. Um, the CT shows a subdural hematoma um, with a one centimeter midline shift and two areas of contusion in the frontal lobes. So that is not good. Um, of course, you know, patients with these types of energy, injuries, excuse me, um, sometimes they appear neurologically normal, um, but then of course they continue to be symptomatic. And so some of, sometimes you just have to err on the side of caution, um, with these patients too. So just based on this gentleman's mechanism of injury, you would want to, anticipate that you know I'm, I'm pretty sure he's got some kind of head trauma head neck chest abdomen pelvis um who knows what else is going on with the extremities um just based on his mechanism of injury so that is where you are with this gentleman so back to what we were kind of talking about at the beginning um rsi versus dsi and so one of the things that they've shown with the DSI is just, it's a different algorithm. So if you pull up the algorithm for the DSI progression, obviously the patient needs uh, requiring a virgin airway. So remember this guy, his GCS was okay. And then it, it was six, I believe. So we have to intubate. So he needs an emergent airway, but we know he has a head injury um, or we suspect. So dissociative agents, of course, vitamin K or um, ketamine, one to one and a half mg per kilo is what you start with. So you go ahead and give that slow IV push just for the dissociation. So that's the first thing that you do. And then you wait about 10 to 15 seconds. And then you go ahead and pre-oxygenate. 
And at this point in time, it's almost like more like a moderate sedation because you just can use a non-rebreather um, plus a nasal cannula. So if the SAT's greater than 95%, um, you can just switch out the non-rebreather for um, non-invasive CPAP and do that for about three minutes. Um, the next step is paralyze. Now we're going to use a paralytic um, rock. I really like rock. Um, sucks is out for a lot of patients, so we just go with rock, one mg per kilo. And then performing um, what's called APOX or APOX, so apneic oxygenation um, with nasal cannula. And you do that for about 45 to 60 minutes after you push your um, paralytic. And then you intubate the patient. So, you know, the advantages of that are not increasing the ICP on a patient who, who's normally, when we do RSI, it's, it's so fast and quick. But if you've got a patient who's still breathing on their own, um, you know, they're going to fight you. They're going to fight you. And this is just going to make the ICP go higher. So there's a lot of studies out there now that show the benefits um, in the EBP for DSI with head injury patients versus RSI. So I encourage you to go ahead and um, follow up on that and look it up because it's really interesting. And it's just a new way and a new thought of how we're doing things as far as a progression of what we're doing in um, the trauma recess. So the next thing is that you, in your scenario, the patient's abdominal CT is negative, so no injury. But due to his intracranial lesion and deterioration in the GCS, he's going to have to go to the OR for an urgent decompression of his subdural. So subdural hematoma, or SDH as it's commonly referred to, um, he'll need to have surgery for that. Um, about 30% of the patients, um, subdurals, of course, we know are more common than epidurals because remember, epidural is arterial. So um, we see those uh, subdurals a lot more, and it's usually about 30% of the patients with severe brain injuries. So this is, again, from that shearing force um, of the bridging blood vessels um, across the cerebral cortex. So just based on this guy's fall, um, thank God he wasn't on thinners, right? Because <laughs> we could have seen a lot more um, bleeding in different areas. So um, again, cerebral contusions can happen too. Those are pretty common about 20-30% of severe brain injuries, um, usually in the frontal and temporal lobes, but they can really occur anywhere. And then, of course, epidural, which we know, the middle meningeal artery, so epidural is arterial, and that's usually in about 9% of the t patients, uh, TBI patients who are coming in like com com comatose, excuse me. Um, so a little bit um, uncommon, a little bit more uncommon. Because um, it's it's really difficult, you know, they have that period of lucidity, like they're fine, and then they're not. So I always think of uh, Liam Neeson's wife, Natasha Richardson. I don't, I don't know if you remember that case from a few years ago, but she was skiing without a helmet. She fell just perfectly, so she had that middle meningeal artery tear. So she's like, oh, no, I'm fine, because, of course, you know, they called ski patrol. They're like, oh, we're medics. Let, let us check you out. And she's like, no, I'm good. So she went back to the ski lodge or wherever, and she took a nap, and she didn't wake up. So very, very sad and very unfortunate, but they do have a different presentation. So 
Just keep that in the back of your clinician mind for patient presentation. And again, mechanism and injury. So if they have a, a contusion or a bruise or a goose egg kind of right in that temporal area, just be having a high index of suspicion for that type of injury. So um, just to finish up your case study, because I'd like to tie everything up with a nice little bow at the end, um, your patient underwent a successful evacuation of his subdural hematoma and subsequent treatment of a femur fracture because they found that on secondary survey um, post-evacuation. Um, he was ultimately discharged to a rehab center for ongoing physical, occupational, and speech therapy. So pretty, did pretty good, got a pretty good outcome. But had you not um, given the patient DSI and intubated right away, of course, the outcome would have been worse. And in addition to that, um, stabilizing and transporting, quick, 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 quick. If you're a... Um, you know, a tertiary facility, you know, you don't, you're not a trauma center, but you don't have a neurosurgeon on call or you're, you know, you're not prepared to take care of this type of patient, you know, having those transfer agreements and everything on hand so you can quickly ship them out is huge for this patient's outcome. So all of those things are very, very important. Um, remember pupils, 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 and chart those in millimeters. And please turn the lights off when you check the patient's pupils. <laughs> because if they're staring straight up at those fluorescent lights and you're trying to shine a light in their eyes, it's not going to be very accurate. Um, so please do that. I'm I'm kind of a big stickler about it. It annoys me when people do that. And, you know, you're doing repeat pupil checks, but how do you really know what kind of result you're going to get? So... Turn the lights off real quick, do the pupil check, chart them in millimeters, make sure that the right's not blown and the left's okay or that, you know, vice versa, that the changes aren't happening. So repeat pupil checks. Don't just check them one time when the patient hits the door as a trauma because, as we know, our patients change very quickly in trauma and resuscitation, so we need to keep assessing our patient accordingly. So, you know, bad things can happen in radiology. Make sure you're checking checking their status there too. You know, you don't have to run in the middle of the CT and do a pupil check, but as much as you can, you know, keep your eyes on those vitals and keep charting those vitals. I like to chart vitals when I'm in CT because it's just inevitably things happen. People go to radiology and as we know, bad things can happen there. So I'm not just going to not monitor my patient. Uh, make sure you have the proper equipment when you go to CT and sedation if you need it. So it's not the time to be calling charge when you're down in CT um, when the patient starts, you know, seizing. Oh, can you bring me some Ativan, two milligrams? You want to anticipate that. So take the drugs with you. Um, if you have a snack pack or whatever that you take with you, um, I call it snack pack. It's it's just a little carrying case full of drugs, um, resuscitation drugs, code drugs. I don't go anywhere without it, um, and that includes my Ambu bag and everything else. So if my patient crashes, I'm ready to go. So just a few words of um, wisdom from an older nurse, and um, remember that um, HTS or hypertonic saline, we're using that a lot now, of course, in most trauma centers, we're using HTS of 3% or 23.4 um, to help decrease the ICP. So you might have that... Um, order as well 
And actually, they've shown there's not a lot of difference between mannitol and um, HTS. So if all you have in your facility is mannitol and you have to transfer this patient, let's say they're going by ground instead of air because you can't medevac them out because of the weather, and all you have is mannitol and you don't have HTS, so go ahead and give the mannitol um, and make sure they have a Foley in so we can measure INO. But just a word to um, some facilities don't have HTS, so you can go ahead and give mannitol um, for that patient as well. So that will help decrease the ICP. Um, of course, if they're hypotensive, um, do not give it. <laughs> make sure. Um, and of course, if they're um, acutely um, deteriorating from a neurological standpoint, that's uh, also can exacerbate certain symptoms like cerebral ischemia. So you don't want to give them mannitol in that case if you suspect that you're having those types of issues with hypovolemia. Um, but if it's just straight up, you know, you've got the ICP, then there's not a lot um, of difference between the mannitol and HTS. So, and anticonvulsants, make sure those are on board and happy transfer to the trauma center, you hope. Um, and you hope that the patient has a good outcome, such as this patient in this case study. So thank you very much, you guys, for tuning in and everybody have a great day, evening, afternoon, and night. <laughs>